Hello and welcome to the menu. This is Monaco's food and drink program. In the next half an hour, you may think you know what Italian food is all about, but you may still find some surprises from the Mediterranean islands. So whether you're in Sicily, Sardinia, Ponza, uh, Giglio, there's a really legume and vegetable-rich culture, lots of pork and lamb. It's a really omnivorous place. Then we cross over to Texas to hear why San Antonio has become a food destination in its own right. What uh, we see is a city that has evolved and, and, and that has embraced new cultures and new migrations into the melting pot and just become rich in restaurants and proposals because of that. All that plus a great new restaurant opening in San Moritz. That's ahead here on The Menu. Katie Parler is an award-winning author and food writer whose new book focuses on the type of Italian cuisine that has been getting much less attention than it deserves. We're talking about food from the Italian islands, and what surprises many is that it's much less about fish and seafood than you may at first think. Katie's book is aptly called Food of the Italian Islands, and she joined me to tell me more about the amazing things you may find in this part of Italy. We're talking about one of my favorite topics ever, which is the islands. Sicily, Sardinia, and then all the other little archipelagos have so much in common because they are isolated. Literally, the Italian word isola is <laughs> uh, the word for island. Um, and so they've had to, over the course of millennia, figure out how to sustain themselves during times of invasion or rough seas. And so all of the islands have turned to the land. So whether you're in Sicily, Sardinia, Ponza, Uh, Giglio. There's a really legume and vegetable-rich culture, lots of pork and lamb. It's a really omnivorous place. And if you're wondering why I didn't list fish there, um, it's because another thing the islands have in common, fish is definitely on the menu now, but that's a relatively new 20th century uh, innovation when fishing became more common and refrigeration became uh, more pervasive. So how do you explain that, by the way, the lack of seafood and fish? It's a luxury product that when fished, for example, tuna off the coast of Sicily or Sardinia uh, would be processed and sold to very wealthy people. So it was an elite product. And the seas are very rough even today. Now they're big fishing boats, but imagine having to go get swordfish or tuna on little wooden vessels. It would be literally terrifying. Um, And also the product itself, unless cured, is very perishable. So when you think of Sardinia today, I know a lot of the listeners out there will be familiar with Botarga. So the fish product that's most associated with Sardinia is not any fresh fish dish, but instead the cured roe of the gray mullet, something that you can salt and it lasts for months in the pantry. It's always when we talk about Italian food, it's always easy to imagine that we know what it's like Everyone has been to Italian restaurants and they have had really nice experiences. But we're talking about different things over here, actually. What what do you think are some of the dishes that exemplify what the food of these islands is like? What do you think are some of the most surprising examples, something different from mainstream Italian? Well, I think that in the case of Ischia, for example, you would expect a place known for its spas and beautiful beach resorts. 
for there to be a very strong fish tradition. But instead, when Italians who are very entrenched in regional cuisine, think of that island, the first dish that comes to mind is braised rabbit, which used to be raised in caves, very easy to raise, a lot more uh, simple to raise than livestock. Um, and so that is the sort of icon of that place. Um, I think also the use of so many bean soups, both uh, infused with summer produce in the summertime and winter produce in the wintertime in all of the islands is a surprise, especially for people who are you know, more accustomed to uh, to holidays on the seaside. Well, when you actually go into the kitchens of people from the islands, you encounter their pantries are full of these dried products. Katie, what is your own story with these islands? I understand that you first visited Sicily as a high school student. My great-grandparents came from Sicily. So like a lot of Italian-Americans from New Jersey, I felt a bond to Sicily without knowing anything about it, could barely find it on a map. Um, but when I did eventually visit, I spent my first few days in Palermo, which was a completely mind-blowing experience in 1996, like very raw, very hot. It was August <laughs> and food absolutely everywhere. I'd been to other Italian cities, but nowhere was I so absolutely inundated with food, whether it was being prepared and served in stalls or uh, raw ingredients, overflowing market stalls, or just like people slicing open sea urchins on the seaside and selling them fully illegally. Doesn't make it less delicious, gotta say. <laughs> and so it was in this trip that I sort of made contact with my family roots for the first time, and the food was totally different than what I grew up with. So I knew I had to spend more time and learn as much as possible. How did you collect all these recipes for this book, by the way? I don't know the exact number, but it's definitely well over 100. So the way that I approached this book is the way that I, the way I usually roll. I travel to the places I really love. I interrogate people until I ingratiate myself enough for them to share recipes. Um, many of my friends, their parents, their cousins, their grandparents, when they know that I'm interested in food and that I've devoted the past 20 years in Italy to writing about food, They are so generous with their time and their kitchens. Recently, a close friend of mine had his family move their uh, annual pig slaughter, which is a big, important ritual in Sardinia, back a few weeks so that I would be able to attend because they all wanted to make sure that I saw how they processed the pig into sausages and and all sorts of really delicious dishes. And so the sort of tactic is to be genuinely curious and then people's doors and kitchens open. How protective are the Italians there about their recipes? Do they want to share all their secrets? <laughs> I find that most people, yes. In all the time I've been doing this, there's only one chef who like straight up lied to me about a recipe. He lied? He lied. He wrote He wrote a potato gnocchi recipe and uh, and it was totally wrong. There were like six ingredients <laughs> in the recipe that totally contradicted like a video he had done about it. So I was like, sir, can we just be real here? And finally, uh, he turned over the the actual recipe. But people people have kind of this this point of view. They're like, we want you to make it. You can't do it like us. So good luck. Here's all the info. <laughs> That's generally the vibe. Are you still surprised when you go there to these places? Do you still discover something new? Oh my God, absolutely. Every single place is incredibly dense, even the smallest island, particularly because there's still the cadence of 
religious festivals that are anchored by certain food traditions. So if you just happen to turn up on the island of Linoza while their patron saint feast is going on, you're going to find pastries that are only made during that certain period. And that goes for all of the islands. And then throughout the seasons, things change. I first started visiting the islands in the obvious summertime, but I do so much winter travel now. And there is a tremendous amount of like beautiful, beautiful produce, preserved foods, lots of festive things that you can't find in the summer months. So obviously in this book, you have a number of recipes, but also some some interesting facts about the region and some anecdotes as well. And actually, I think we should talk about one of these. What I found really fascinating is the culture of Sardinian knives. Can you tell us more about that? Oh my God, Sardinians are the absolute knife royalty of Europe. And because the culture was more or less agricultural until the 20th century, you had to have knives for a variety of things. Um, Grafting plants skinning animals, banditry, all things were going on in the countryside there. And so certain knife shapes evolved in order to be the best possible tool for the task. And knife artisans in Sardinia are still practicing their customs to this day. So you can go to specific towns, whether it's Santa Lusurju or Patada, and the shape of the knife blade is instantly recognizable to collectors as being from that particular place. And then the handles are made with all sorts of horns, some obtained legally, others through sort of dubiously legal avenues. But it's a beautiful culture, the the knife culture of Sardinia, and one that anyone can bring back as long as you pack it in your luggage that, that gets checked in. Kate, your new cookbook, Food of the Italian Islands, it looks stunning. One of my favorite things, obviously, is North Recipes. It's also these amazing photos. Can you tell me something about your principles when it comes to writing cookbooks and and thinking about what they should look like? What are your ideals? So I do not really love the feel of a studio cookbook shoot for my particular purposes. I want people to see the food as it actually is in the place. And so when my photographer, Ed Anderson, and I went out into the field, we shot as many dishes as we could in situ. And that sometimes means like kind of terrible plates and not the best light, but I think it gives a much more um, rich experience to the reader to be able to see things as they are rather than, you know, art directed in, in a studio. Absolutely. Just finally, Katie, shall we shall we finish with some recommendations or so? Obviously, when we talk about the Italian islands, there are quite a few places to go to. For those listeners who are not familiar with this part of the world, where, where do you think they should go first? Which places well, have the best think, food? Oh my God, it's so, this is such a hard question, Marcus, you're killing me. So I think Ponza is really great and it's close to Rome and close to Naples. So two big airports that people could potentially fly into. It's got a lot of adventure and you can just go dive for sea urchins, literally like off the coast near where you're sleeping. Um, And there's such a great small fishing industry that's based around Ponza. You can eat the most delicious, freshest fish. The rest of it gets sent to the mainland, but the sort of uh, the, 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 the best, most sort of like flavorful octopi and clams stay right there. Sardinia is gigantic and it has everything. So I would like book a trip to Cagliari and rent a car, drive counterclockwise around the island, stopping 
at Ovile Bertorelli for the most delicious suckling pig and handmade pasta. I would go to Tortoli where Botarga is made by hand and eat lots of spaghetti with the Botarga shaved on it. I'd head up to Nuoro for Sufilindeu and all the beautiful uh, intricate durum wheat pastas and breads of the Barbaja subregion. I'd probably find some time for the sea between meals as well, um, but I wouldn't skip Alguero, which is an incredible, very Spanish-influenced town in the Northwest, um, and uh, would pop over to Samandra, a working farm, for the most delicious seasonal produce and homemade salumi. Katie Palavera, her new book is called Food of the Italian Islands. Next up on the menu, we head to the ski slopes of San Moritz to cover the latest opening by the Milanese restaurant chain Langosteria. Started in 2007 by Enrico Buonacore, the high-end hospitality group has won legions of fans with its carefully constructed menus that deliver top-quality seafood with Italian flair. Borocore's skilled management of his Langosteria restaurants, which now include locations in Paris and Portofino, has even caught the attention of luxury fashion brands eager to join in on the delicious prospects of fresh fish dishes served in stylish surroundings. We sent Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallio to the Swiss Alps to meet up with Borocore and to learn more. In the rarefied atmosphere of San Moritz, with its five-star hotels and luxury fashion boutiques, dining is a serious endeavor, as restaurants look to outdo each other to attract a discerning clientele. One ready for the challenge is Enrico Buonocore. Buonocore is a Milan-based food entrepreneur who owns one of the culinary world's hottest properties, the Langosteria Restaurant Group, that specializes in quality seafood with Mediterranean inspiration. Already with four venues in Milan, one in Paris, and another in Portofino, this January, Buonocore decided to bring his tasty offerings, from gnocchetti with Sicilian red prawns, to tuna carpaccio, to the Alps. Rather than open amid the luxury hotels of San Moritz, Buonocore opted for a spacious alpine hut, Cesa Chantarella, that sits on the slopes above the resort, allowing diners a ski-in, ski-out culinary experience unlike any other. Our idea to open Langosteria in St. Moritz is uh, an idea of uh, we have a long time with uh, my partner uh, Pietro. Uh, after the, our leisure location in uh, Portofino, Paraggi Beach, uh, after six years we, with a successful business, a successful experience um, we created in this area, we want to combine a second location. Uh, Portofino is on the beach, is here we are on the mountain. And uh, is a chalet, is a special location, uh, is a very mountain chalet, incredible view uh, on this on the on the slope. Is uh, the sun arrive on our terrace uh, for the lunch and this incredible hotspot for our brand. Raised in Milan, Buonacore's family has roots in Italy's picturesque Amalfi Coast. He drew inspiration from the Mediterranean for his langosteria concept, creating seafood pasta dishes 
like large tube pakri pasta served with European bass, dressed up in olives, capers, and lemons from Amalfi. The chic atmosphere of his cozy restaurants has drawn well-heeled clients, eager to enjoy the treasures of the deep sea, which he manages to secure through careful logistical planning to ensure the freshest catch gets to the top of the mountain or to his other six locations. The product arrives in St. Moritz uh, without any problem because our supplier helps us to find a solution for the logistic. Uh, okay, there are a different because city restaurants have a, a very close to the fish market of Milan and in Paris the same. Here is necessary to create it and to work in advance to prepare our uh, uh, product but um, St. Maurice is two hours to Milano, two hours to Genève. is not very difficult for us. And uh, I'm very happy because the people love eat fish on the mountain. And the people love to eat oyster, and our fantastic langoustin, our king crab, uh, our fish. And, uh, Besides his signature dishes, like the much-loved papa al pomodoro, a tomato bread soup served with sautéed clams, Buonocore has devised new offerings to cater to the demanding clientele who vacation in St. Moritz. Only for there, Langosteria St. Moritz have the historical dish, signature dish, fr- uh, plateau of seafood, all you found in uh, Milano, Portofino, and Parigi. But we decide to propose for our guests one historical dishes we we served the, the restaurant before as the retomatis chef is a, a pizza, uh, Cesar Centarella, with truffle, white truffle now. And the second dish we want to propose is the collaboration with Caviar Caspia. And we have uh, the two different uh, products of, ca- of caviar and a very famous baked potato and tagliolini with the caviar. Uh, and... Uh, a very incredible uh, success for the first day is the polenta with seafood. And uh, we decided to propose these dishes because for the, ski, the, the people of the ski arrive and want a very important dish, and we found this tree solution. Langosteria's concept has achieved cult status, with diners at its Paris location keeping tables booked solid. The restaurant in the French capital opened inside Hotel Cheval Blanc. As Bernard Arnault CEO of French luxury group LVMH, is a fan of the food. But Arnaud wasn't the first to see potential in La Gosteria. Remo Ruffini of fashion brand Montclair was a regular customer in Milan and decided to join as an investor to help Bonacore's business grow. Pietro Ruffini, son of Remo, works with La Gosteria and explains the restaurant's appeal. We really like Langosteria because it, was, uh, it is a very contemporary concept, sir. And uh, I think nowadays you want to have uh, not only a great uh, uh, plate of pasta or a great uh, uh, pizza, but food is a component, which is an important one. Uh, today you have to be light, easy to eat, uh, very contemporary, not too sophisticated. And uh, Langosteria really uh, encompassed what to us uh, is really meaningful, meaning food, service and, and branding. I think there are a uh, few plates in, uh, in Langosteria uh, menu that really explain well uh, 
this uh, excellence towards uh, you know seafood uh, Italy Mediterranean concept uh, lightness uh, so one is for sure it's papal pomodoro uh, which is a t- very traditional Italian dish uh, from Tuscany you know and Rangosteria made it uh, much lighter and much elevated uh, together with clams uh, and uh, and a sauté of clams uh, which really uh, elevated the uh, uh, the concepts and then there are so many uh, uh, pastas with with seafood uh, that once again they uh, they perfectly matching what uh, what to us it's uh, it's Italy is seafood uh, is research uh, it's uh, you know it's it's, it's passion and uh, and uh, really drives us to uh, to, to think that uh, it's it's the good product mix. Langosteria Samorit looks to stay busy until April and the end of the ski season. Then Buonocore will close shop and move the seasonal staff down to Portofino for the summer. Samorit's aims to reopen for August and then again for the winter season in December to cater to clients already hooked on the flavors of the Mediterranean. For Monocle in Samorit's, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monaco's Monica Lillis. Japan's national drink, sake, is seeing a boost in popularity in the international market. According to the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association, exports totaled 274 million euro in 2021. The figure is a record high for the 12th year in a row and comes as a result of a growing global appreciation of Japanese food and culture. Despite this, the domestic market has dwindled by 30% over the last three decades. Ten Finnish food brands are still using fish caught by Russian boats despite sanctions on Russian products over the war in Ukraine. An investigation by journalists at Helsingin Sanomat newspaper found that a legal loophole means fish products are categorised from the country the fish were processed in, not where it is caught. This has meant Russian caught fish has often been labelled as Chinese. Since April, Russian seafood imports have been banned from the EU and Russian boats are no longer welcome in European ports. And climate change has spurred on a search for forgotten grape varieties in the winemaking world. Vinters in Europe and the US are looking to resurrect late-ripening and heat-tolerant varieties, which are better suited to rising global temperatures. In Spain, the efforts have helped boost the number of commercially registered varieties by 50% in the past two decades. This comes as the country experienced its hottest year since record-keeping began in 2022. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle24. Now, when you think about your next holiday and if you like great food, you may not instantly think about Texas. But interestingly enough, some great things have been happening in America's second largest state. Someone who has been pioneering top-class food in San Antonio is Geronimo Lopez. He joined me a bit earlier to tell us about what exactly has been happening in the city and to tell us about his work at his restaurant, Botica. Yeah, so Botica is, uh, I like to describe it as the crossroads between uh, South America and South Asia. 
and it's basically derived from my life experience and my work. Uh, being from Caracas, Venezuela, uh, I grew up in a very cosmopolitan city, eating different foods and, and getting nurtured, if you will, by all these influences. And then as a professional cook, I travel uh, extensively and, and I find that a fascination, if you will, for the for the duality of the ingredients that you see between Asia and South America. So the, the way we treat mangoes, avocados, uh, plantains, uh, curries and spices is similar but different. But and I I personally find them very complementary. So there's a whole movement of this that we call Chifa and Nikkei which are the expressions of the melting pot of the migration from China and from Japan to South America. And I am uh, a part of that uh, culture and a part of that migration. So I definitely uh, want to express those flavors in Botica. So you've been running your restaurant Botica since 2016. I'm wondering, looking at things in San, San Antonio more widely, how do you think the city's food culture has evolved? What's happening there? So, you know, San Antonio um, was the cradle for uh, for the Tex-Mex cuisine, and I was known for the longest time because of that, right? And there, there, that trend is still there, and we find more than a thousand Mexican restaurants in San Antonio, anything from Tex-Mex cuisine, but that evolved also into more regional and interior Mexican cuisine. So you can find restaurants that do a lot more of uh, Ciudad de Mexico style, uh, restaurants that do a lot more of the uh, Southern style, which is Oaxacan or Yucateca style cuisine. And uh, and that actually then changed and started bringing in more of what is the Guatemalan or the Salvadorian cuisine. And we have welcome an array of migrations from South America, yeah, from Venezuela as myself, or also from the Caribbean, from Puerto Rico or Cuba. So what uh, we see is a city that has evolved and, and, and that has embraced new cultures and new migrations into the melting pot and just become rich in restaurants and proposals because of that. So I am very happy to say that the culinary scene in San Antonio is growing and is a great reflection of how inclusive and and the diversity of the city itself. What's interesting is that you are in London and one of the reasons for that is that you are promoting San Antonio and what's happening there. What do you hope from the future? What do you want to see happen in the city? You know, uh, I think that we need that San Antonio has done great steps in being a very progressive city and a city that uh, accepts and and it's a safe space for everybody. I think we need to really uh, step on the pedal f- of that and 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 really push forward. And and we are already a leader in the culinary world in in terms of what Texas is and in terms of our region. But uh, I think that the, the job is never done, you know, and, and chefs are always the students of of, uh, of different and new trends. And, and so we uh, have to make sure that we're creating more safe spaces for people to come and cook and develop their career, more places for people to come and test uh, new culinary styles and new flavor profiles. And I um, I think that if people do that and come from a place of... Uh, of understanding and humbleness, they can learn a, a lot, a great deal of different cultures and be more accepting of each other.
Geronimo Lopez there, he runs his restaurant Botica in San Antonio's historic Pearl Brewery. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at 1500 in Toronto. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And, of course, you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippip. Our studio engineer was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. From France, here is Sebastian Tellier with Fingers of Steel. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Thank you.